Welcome to the World Outspoken feature. I am your host, Emmanuel Padilla. I am here with Sandra Maria Van Opstel. How do you pronounce the last part of that? Van Opstal. Van Opstal. <laughs> a second-generation Latina. She is the co-founder and executive director of Chasing Justice and lives on the west side of Chicago, where I also live. Uh, she lives there with her husband and two boys. She's a preacher, a liturgist, an ethnomusicologist, an activist, uh, who's reimagining the intersection of worship and justice. Sandra served with Urbana Missions Conference, uh, particularly leading worship in 03, 09, and 2012. Uh, she's also served with the Chicago Urban Program and Latino National Leadership Team, La Fe, of InterVarsity. Uh, Sandra's influence has also reached many others through preaching globally on topics such as worship and formation, justice, racial identity, and reconciliation. Sandra currently serves as content director for the Justice Conference, is a board member of the CCDA, and holds an MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, my alma mater. Uh, her most recent book includes Still Evangelical and The Next Worship, which we're going to be talking about today. Sandra, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, so how do you feel being at Moody? I know you used to visit here. One of my close friends, Kerwin Rodriguez, we actually co-teach a class here. So do you got any hot goss on Kerwin as he was a student <laughs> at Trinity? Um, no, I do actually don't. Uh, oh, he was man. like me. We, we came in and we flew in and flew out as much as we could because we had so many jobs we were holding at the same time. So. Yeah. I was really hoping to get some dirt I could use against them, but, but that's all right. Kerwin and I are actually teaching a class here at Moody called Cultural Dynamics of Congregational Ministry. Awesome. And we talk a lot about kind of changing cultures. And so it's really fun to have two Hispanics, a Dominican-American, a Puerto Rican-American, engaging these topics, which is really, really fun. Awesome. Uh, we were just talking about a lot of the things you're doing. Where are you off to next? What's your next travel? I know you have a uh, lot going on, but where are you yes. heading next? Well, I finally landed because it's the end of of November now. Well, actually, we're going to California as a family to hang out with some family and friends there. But um, it, fall is insane. So I have been all over the 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 country and outside of the country since uh, July. So it kind of started early today so or this year. So finally, I feel like, oh, my gosh, if I could just get to November 15th, I'll be back at home. Sure. And now I'm back at home. So my congregation gets to see me again. <laughs> and your congregation is Grace and Peace, which is up in, would you say it's in Humboldt Park? So we moved, uh, for those of you that are in Chicago, we moved along Armitage all the way west. Um, we are originally, the church was originally at uh, North and uh, Kedzie, and then it was kind of at Armitage and Costner, and now we're at Armitage and like Grand and Leclerc. Yeah, so we're all the way north Austin. Yeah, moving north and and pretty yeah. far west too. Yeah, moving towards the outer limits of the city. I'd ask why that is, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> Maybe it'll come up in our conversation. It might. It might. So we're here to talk about your book, "The Next Worship: Glorifying God in a Diverse World." I do want to highlight a few things in terms of points of context to kind of set the book. Uh, the book is really about a diversifying world and how we address worship. But there are a few details that I thought might help our audience in terms of getting that ready. Uh, so number one, the world is changing. The U.S. is changing, right? Non-Hispanic whites are already less than 50% of the youth. Uh, the youth population in 632 of America's 3,000 plus counties. And most of these areas are in the southern or coastal areas, so the outer limits of the U.S., uh, but that's also being reflected here in the Midwest to great effect. So young people are seeing a very different world than their parents who grew up here. Uh, the other two details that I thought I'd point out is that by 2020, which is a month and a half away, 50.2% <laughs> uh, of American children will be from minority groups. So there will no longer be 
an ethnic majority or a race majority here in the U.S. And that means that 20 years from then, so in 2040, over 50, over 50, over half, uh, half of the population in the U.S. of all ages will be the same dynamic. There will no longer be an ethnic majority. And that's changing things pretty dramatically. And your book is, to some degree, perfectly set to address that world, uh, to address the changing dynamics. Broadly speaking, local churches, local congregations are asking how they will welcome in new groups uh, and be church together or partner with diverse congregations. Your book speaks specifically to the very important question, how do we worship together? Did I get that right? Yes, it does. It, it's a it's a question of, I think, congregational life, uh, but primarily around the experience of uh, our worship practices, mm-hmm. including everything that happens on the Sunday service. Yeah. Or it could be Wednesday night, whenever you meet. <laughs> whenever you meet. That's right. That's right. Fridays for those youth yeah. that are trying to keep people out from Friday night yep. activities. Sunday afternoons if you're renting from another church. That's right. That's right. You're Latina, so you know about that. Renting from other churches and doing Friday night youth services. Did you grow up in a in a traditional Hispanic church that way? I, I did. I grew up in a traditional Hispanic uh, Catholic church. So okay. Spanish speaking. Um, so that part of my tradition. And then, um, when I, when I was like in a context of, um, Protestant Christianity, it was actually in a white Southern Baptist church. So that's also a story for another time, but it actually is why, um, I have an affinity for and a love for understanding how each specific space and place contributes to understanding the whole picture of God's kingdom, because I can't say that I had an experience that I don't to this day really, really foundationally appreciate. Sure. That makes sense to me. So my transition, I was raised in a more charismatic, Pentecostal, mostly Puerto Rican church. And then when I came to kind of encounter college ministries, crew, university, I got connected to some other ministries that I ended up landing at a non-denominational, i.e. Baptist, uh, white church. And it ended up starting to shape some of the questions I was asking and give me kind of appreciation for those differences. So I hear you on that. Uh, Let me ask, though. So you define worship just so that our audience knows. We're talking about a word that sometimes people use to mean the Christian life broadly. Sometimes people use it just for the music. Uh, In your book, you define worship as the communal gathering of God's people in which we glorify God for his person and actions. But I think we want to be more specific even than that and ask, what do we mean when we say multi-ethnic worship? What do we mean by that? Um, yeah. So, so first of all, yes, I, I, I do, def, I do want to, I did want to start the book by saying when I say worship, I'm talking about a congregational, a communal gathering. And the reason is because one of my other emphasis of, of kind of research and love and study and writing is in the area of, of, of justice and compassion and lifestyle. And so stewardship. And so all those things obviously are part of our Christian worship. I want to make clear so that I didn't get like all the comments like this is not worship. I'm talking about a communal gathering. That's right. And so in that space, um, I define multi-ethnic worship as um, the ability to acknowledge um, and to honor and to embody really or display the different um, the different cultures that we're from. And so what I'm talking about is acknowledging multi-ethnic worship is worship that acknowledges that we are different. Um, and it and it embraces it and it honors it and it it displays it in some way. Yeah. Um, and so 
it's being able to come across differences and not just say, hey, we're different. Let's sing songs together. But um, let's acknowledge that we actually probably don't have the same life experiences or the same um, cultural values that we're operating out of. And it affects the way that we understand scripture and it affects the way that we come to God and it affects what we want to say to God. It actually even impacts the reason we come to church. That's right. Um, and so not just style and form, but the very essence or reason that we congregate together is different depending on your ethnic culture, your class, your social location. Um, and I can talk forever about that, but I think that multi-ethnic worship acknowledges it and it honors it and it embodies it in some way. Yeah. As I was reading the book, there were, se- if you were to look at my book and just see the things I scribbled on the sides, there are several times where I say facts, this is just true. Um, I love the book. I really enjoyed reading it because I think you are highlighting this idea that differences don't need to be minimized, nor do they have to uh, create tension to the degree that we can't worship together, right? In, in some sense, the the conclusion of the book is a kind of uh, echo of there is a future kingdom coming. There is a future reality for the church that's coming that, that we bear witness to in the here and now when we worship together as a multi-ethnic group. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say yes, because it's the end of scripture. That's <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so at the end of all things, I mean, that's what I think is phenomenal about about the work that we do is um, I'm not literally not making this stuff up. When you go to the last pages of scripture, you're going to find that God wins. That's right. And um, there is peace and justice and wholeness and, you know, this biblical concept of shalom, you know, the entirety of all things being complete and in that picture are God's people with all of their diversity and all of their beauty. I imagine it all of the languages and all of the smells and all of the colors um, to most completely honor God uh, for who God is and for what God has done. Yeah. Both. beautiful vision, but it's a hard one to live in the here and now. Your experiences, uh, it's from the book, it, le- it looks like this, this started as you were working in college, ministries, things like Urbana, InterVarsity, that kind of thing. Uh, you wrote in the book, in each season of the journey for InterVarsity, the question asked was not, what do we prefer in worship, or even what do the students prefer in worship? As a movement, they, I'm, I assume we mean InterVarsity, uh, had to reimagine worship for a changing student generation. I found that really interesting because you added in that same paragraph, you said, the church is diverse. Hello. The church is a diverse group globally. The church, everyone included in the church, it's a diverse group. And you wrote, and congregational worship should reflect the diversity of God's people, even if local congregations, uh, the local congregation itself is not diverse. Uh, why do you think local congregations should commit to that vision? Yes. And it is it is interesting now to he- hear somebody reading my words um, so long ago, actually, because it feels like I wrote this book so long ago. Um, but I wrote the book because I am convinced that Diverse worship is not about creating multi-ethnic spaces. Diverse worship is about living into a reality that the church is global and diverse. So 
to answer your question, I think it has to start with like the reason I wrote this was because I kept getting the question like, you know, our neighborhood is more Latino. How do we reach out to the Latino population? I was like, here's a book, you know. No, I'm just kidding. I was like, um, <laughs> yeah. why do you want Latinos? That's what I asked. Why do you want them? And so there, there was this kind of journey about like we want to – we want to respond to this reality that we're experiencing in our neighborhood or in our school or in our church. Um, our church is more diverse. How do we create worship that's, you know, hospitable to all peoples? But I actually wanted to reframe the question and say, how, why should every single church, whether it's a English speaking Korean, you know, Korean young church or whether it's a pan Asian church or whether it's an all black church or whether why should all of us participate in diverse worship? And the reason is because it it gives honor to the reality that the church is global and it reframes the way we think about our faith. So this Sunday at church, I mean, it's Puerto Rican um you know, pr- primarily Puerto Rican church that's more, you know, generally like a mixture of Latinos and African-Americans in the church and other relocators who have come into the neighborhood. But we're singing a song that came from Nigeria and we're singing it because and we and our worship leader saying, here's a song that came to us from our brothers and sisters over here. And we need to pay attention because they're a part of our family. Um, I think when I sing songs to my sons at night, I sing to them in Korean and we sing in Spanish and we sing in, in English. And my husband, because he's from Wisconsin and he's white, he sings hymns and he wants us to have the key change and put the harmonies in it. Yeah, he wants us to put harmonies in them. So, but we sing all, I think we sing all creatures of our God and King this week. Um, all of those are shaping my kids' reality that we have a church that is um, global and that people's expression an experience of God come from their social location. And so all of those are good things. We're not saying out with that and in with this. We're saying all of these are the reality of the church. So I think that it forms congregation. So I I was on a mission. I'm like, I'm going to, my mission is to help people understand that you don't, as worship leaders and pastors, you don't just give people what they want because it's popular and it sounds great on Spotify and they like to hear their voice singing it. You, you are... Your mission is to form people's spiritual realities and to to help them to see the reality of what scripture calls us to in practice in the church. So I was like, we're going to do this in practice in the church. And here's how you might, here's how you might do it, you know? Um, So it's really a call to everyone. And so therefore, when I was writing it, I actually had urban Latino pastors read it, African-American pastors read it, pastors up in in like rural Iowa read it. Like, does this make sense? Could you do this in your context? Because it wasn't going to be a a book for white megachurches that wanted to become diverse. That's not what I wanted to write. I wanted to call the whole church. Yeah, I think that's excellent. There's a story in the book that really moved me where you introduced a song in Arabic to a college ministry and you had a student uh, email you later and say, that really helped me reframe, uh, rethink of when I hear Arabic to re- reframe my instinct, how I react to hearing the language. And I think that's what you're talking about. This isn't about preference. Uh, later in the book, you talk about the primary reasons we should pursue multicultural worship are neither pragmatic nor trends. The speaking of, oh, we've got Latinos in our neighborhood now. We should do it. But you said 
but it's biblical community and mission. And I, I love that because it re- reshapes our mind and our vision for what the church should look like. And so when we sing in Arabic, we change the way that we think about the language and think about those who speak that language. And so I found that to be really, really compelling as I thought through my own experience in worship and how I might change the way that I think of God's people and myself in it. And so I found it really helpful. Yeah, thank you. And I think um, even thinking about our own, because I'm a, I'm a local pastor, so I'm thinking about my own experience, even not only culturally as it relates to ethnic cultures or languages, but generationally, man, there's just, there's ways you have to change. And there has to be room to give people space to express themselves and to write music and to arrange your music. And it feels sometimes very scary to people, but I think it can be exciting. I think it could be, it's an opportunity to innovate and to create and to ask like, what is God's spirit doing in this next generation that frankly just wasn't happening in ours? Because the world was such that it didn't require a particular fresh expression. And so I'm always looking for what are ways that we can um, Im- create environments of empowerment where people can begin to give voice to their, their God story in a, in not only a style, but enhancing or elevating a theology that maybe has been missing. Yeah, no, absolutely. It enhances, it contributes to all of our theological visions. And so I think that's very good. Uh, Let me hit you with some objections that you encountered throughout throughout your time thinking through this. You share them in the book. So these are all objections you've heard and you're you're quoting in the book. But as people start thinking about this, there are going to be objections that come up. And we want to sort of preemptively say, hey, FYI, we've thought of that too. Is that fair? Oh yeah. I'll hit you with a couple of them and then we'll we'll talk through how do you, how you react. So we'll I'll hit you with one, we'll answer and then we'll go from there. Uh, so here's the first one. Why are you forcing me to sing in other languages? That's not at all helpful to my personal worship. We should have worship in a way everyone can participate. Why do we have to try to try so hard to be something we're not? Why can't we just worship, you know, normal worship? Why do we have to sing in Spanish or any other language? If we just have good worship, people from different backgrounds will just come to church. How do we respond to that? What do you say to that question or that critique? My blood pressure just went up. Um, Yes, it's the most common one. And I would like to say that it comes from every single community. I have not gone to a community where that hasn't been said, whether it's... um, urban black Pentecostal or, you know, white, you know, older reformed, or, I mean, you pick one, it's come from every single community. And I think, I think it comes because change is hard. Um, And I, that's why I wrote a whole chapter after I wrote the whole book, I actually went back and wrote a chapter about change, um, change management, basically. um, And how do you change culture? Um, I think what people hear I think what people are trying to say is it's not organic or natural to me. It doesn't make sense for me. That's not what I'm used to. That's not what makes me feel comfortable. So I would first say to that need, um, nothing really about the Christian life should be comfortable. That's just not in the Bible. Sorry. Um, And 
I don't know what to say about that, but you have someone, you know, you want to get in shape or you want to be, you want your body to be physically better. What do you do? You go to a gym and you do CrossFit and you have some person yell at you for like an hour and you pay them to do that. So um, let me yell at you for an hour. No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) So I would say, of course, it's not comfortable because we're being formed and shaped into Christ's image. And we're expanding our understanding of what it means to see God and to understand God. So if I want to sing praises to God and be like in my happy songs all day long, and I, you know, listen to a particular station or church or worship movement on Spotify, and all the songs are around a theology that is about me, 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 and all the words are I, and it's all about yourself, and you are in front of the Lord, and you and God, and you and God, and you and God, that literally isn't the thrust of the Bible. That's just not what the Bible's about. It's about God's people, plural. Almost every epistle, every you that it's in there, it's almost all plural. And therefore, we're we're really appeasing a theology that's come from probably a, a very individualistic Western way of, of understanding faith and God. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Um, God is at work in you in Ephesians, you all. He's doing it for you all. And so I think um, we want worship that theologically meets our needs. I think the idea of comfort, safety, security, individualism, me, I think that's just very American. Um, And I, I think that we as church leaders, as professors, as teachers, as worship leaders, I think we need to be um, under, we need to understand that we have a responsibility to shape people's understanding of God and their faith in the church. So I would say people do that because they don't feel comfortable. Now, granted, I, I sound awful in Chinese. It's just awful. I can't, I, for, I can't get it. Um, <laughs> so when I'm singing in songs in Chinese, I'm not like, well, I really want to hear myself sound awful in Chinese. Um, I'm doing it because I'm trying to do two things. One, I want to connect with the reality of my brothers and sisters in China um, and what they're what they're experiencing right now. And really, um, number two, part of it helps me understand what it's like to be a person in a different culture who doesn't speak the language and is forced to sing and learn and talk to God in a language that is not mine. So I think about all of my peers in seminary who are learning Hebrew through English but they were Korean speakers. What was it like for them to be in class to learn American church history, even though it was called church history, and to hear in a language that is not their own and to have to respond in papers and in class in a language that is not their own, their deepest longings and understanding of who God is, what was that like for them? Well, I experience in a very, very small way when I sing in their language. So if I am connecting with both the reality of the church in a certain space and place. And I'm having this experience of sounding strange and probably not very important or smart. Then I'm connecting with my brothers or sisters who have the same experience in reality. So, um, but I get it. We just want to sing songs that we like and we know and connect with us. And, um, but that's just not what worship is about. Worship is about gathering together to honor God together in a community of people. So I always tell people if what you want is to 
have songs that meet your needs and to sing songs that you relate to and for worship to be about you, then you just stay home and yeah. press play because yeah. you don't got to go to church to do that. Yeah, agreed. It, it costs us something is what you're saying. It costs us something. It, it's, uh, it can be uncomfortable. Uh, I had a friend here at Moody. We were in chapel and we brought in an, uh, a very famous local African-American pastor who preached in a very African-American, you know, hooping style. And the, and the, the colleague of mine said, it makes me uncomfortable. I feel like I'm forced to live in another culture. I said, well, imagine the other way around, right, where students from that tradition are forced to be in a kind of tradition that is uh, uncomfortable or something they're not used to, right? And so yeah. it welcomes everyone into that shared discomfort, which is part of being together. And I think that's good. Uh, you brought, you just said the comment, you know, if you want your preferences, stay home. In your book, you actually say something very similar. Well, you said one of the greatest challenges of our generation is that people make choices based almost exclusively on our uh, preferences. Tell me more about that. And how, how is that? Uh, how has the abundance of choice affected our ability to live and worship together? Well, I was just thinking that even since I wrote that statement, I've learned more about how social media works. So it's not only that we live life according to our preferences, but there are algorithms that keep us in our preferences. It's not even now only that we have blind spots. It's that there are, there are programs and systems set up to keep us in our blind spots. And so what a prophetic act for the church. If instead of, the incredible tribalism and division that we experience right now, we were to show a different way of gathering, not just in, in our songs, but in the, in, in the way that we pray and what we pray for, in the way that we preach, in who preaches, in who gets quoted during our preaching, in whose stories are told and whose theology is elevated in our preaching. So I think, I think that the, 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 the world has changed. Past tense. Past tense. Amen. If that makes you scared, I'm not sure why. Because I it just it doesn't make me scared. Like I the statistics you read in the beginning, I was like, how exciting. You know, the sure. world is changing, you know. Um the the center of the church, it shifted about two decades ago. Sure. Um so it has already moved. It's in the global south. We're not the center anymore. So if I could just speak to us as Folks, if we're in an American context, um, we're not the center anymore. And therefore, what a prophetic act and lifestyle if the way that we lived was to, to embody what is actually true. Yeah, that's right. You talk in the book about there are four dimensions to multi-ethnic worship. You talk about it being transcultural contextual, cross-cultural, and then the last one, countercultural. And this is what you're highlighting here, that when we worship in a multi-ethnic setting, all together, really, we are being prophetic. We are being countercultural to the algorithms, the forces, those things that would otherwise keep us apart. Uh, we have to take a quick break. 
uh, for an announcement from some friends and ministry partners. We'll take that break and then we'll come back and ask Sandra some practical application questions. How to? What do we do next? Hola, hermanos y hermanas. My name is Elizabeth Conde Frazier and I'm here with a familiar voice, Emmanuel Padilla, to introduce to you the Mestizo Podcast, the show for the mixed people of the mixed church. World Outspoken partnered with the Association for Hispanic Theological Education to produce a show where we explore the complicated challenges of being part of, serving in, and growing an ethnic church in El Siglo XXI. As first-generation immigrants age out of their leadership and the Mestizo Church transitions to the second and the third generation, how does the ethnic church continue to thrive? What should an ethnic church look like today? These questions and more are what we explore together with your hosts, Emmanuel Padilla y la Dra. Elizabeth Conde Frazier. Your hosts are Puerto Rican, so you're going to hear some Spanglish de vez en cuando on the Mestizo podcast. It's part of who we are. We will have guests like Karen Figueroa and Agustin Aquiles join us to discuss issues of language, culture, identity, and how they affect the changing church. Espera el primer episodio on March 30th. She said expect the first episode on March 30th. Follow Word Outspoken on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so you don't miss the release of this sabroso new show. For now, here's a bomba for you. Aquí do Boricua te invitan a un nuevo show donde hablamos good-looking English con un nuevo flow. Bomba! Bomba! When we started this email exchange about the book, that was something that I was worried about. I said, hey, is this going to be all right? Because I know it's that the good. Book I mean, is- I still I consult in this area. I just yeah. don't do a lot of. Well, that's not true. What I was going to say is I'm still consulting and teaching in this area. And I'm like, I'm about to do something else. But the it was almost like the book was ahead of its time. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I, as I'm reading it, I'm going, yeah. wow, this book is I'm thinking I'm going to sign it, right? Like I need to make sure I get students in front yeah. of this. And so yeah. uh, it's going on my list when I work consulting jobs with churches yeah. that are trying to make sense of the changing world. I'm going to say, hey, one of the first things you need to think about is your worship. And here, yeah. here's a book that talks about that thoroughly. Well, so let's get back into it. Speaking of that, uh, we, uh, we want to ask questions about the applications of these things, right? I think theoretically, I think people can capture the vision, they can fall in love with the idea and still be pretty terrified and not want to to implement it. Uh, one, of, There are a few things that you brought up in the book. I'll, I'll ask kind of a big picture question first. The entirety of the book is using a kind of metaphor as its skeleton, the table and the meal, if you will. Cooking requires a level of skill, right? Especially when you're cooking different dishes. You even have a website that you highlight in the book where you point them to recipes that you've cooked uh, in multi-ethnic settings. Uh, What do you say to people who say, I don't have that level of skill, right? That say, this all sounds really great, but we don't have the resources or the skills to go beyond the things that we're currently doing. How do you respond to that? Um, I I don't think that it has to be more complicated than the skill level you have. I don't, I mean, I, I, I want to be honest. Let me say this. I don't play an instrument, okay? So I'm a worship leader that doesn't play an instrument. In a in a broader evangelical context, that's really, really odd because you would come in with your guitar or your, you know, sure. your keyboard or whatever. I don't play an instrument. So if I want to lead a song that is highlighting or bringing forth the biblical 
um, themes or the theological narrative of the African American church, I I'm not going to come with a full band and a you know like a fantastic bass sound. I'm going to come literally with my hands or a tambourine and my voice. And what I'm trying to do is help people enter in to the spirituality of that community through song, through prayer, maybe through reading a quote or through preaching. So I I wanted I would say that if what you're thinking right now is Sanders telling us we have to do black gospel or we have to sing a song in Arabic, we don't have the team to do that. I just want to pull back a second and say that the first responsibility that we would have in trying to execute this is to explain to our congregations or our communities why are we doing this? Like, even if it's just you and your kids at night, like, why are we singing songs in Korean? Why are we singing songs in Arabic? So we want to pull back and say, you know what? Loving God and worshiping God is not just about what your preferences are. It's about taking you to places that you don't haven't imagined or don't want to go. So a lot of times I, I tell people, our job, you can see it as like a tour guide or as an interpreter. So the first thing we need, the only skill we need to develop Skill number one, how do I guide people or how do I interpret for people what we're doing? And so I say, you know, if someone comes to Chicago, which I think Chicago is awesome. I love giving tours. I love giving tours of the city. I always ask them, you know, if they're going to be here for one day, we're going to see the bean, we're going to see the lakefront, we're going to eat some popcorn, eat some pizza. But if they're going to be here for like a minute, then I'm going to say, you know, what do you want to see? And they're like, I'm really into sports. So I'll take them to all the places I don't want to go because I'm really not into sports. (laughs) And then if they're here for a little bit longer, I'll say, let me take you someplace you've never been before. And I'll take them to Humboldt Park and I'll feed them a jibarito and they will talk about that sandwich for the rest of their lives. Indeed they will. And so I think our job is that of a tour guide. If a tour guide only takes you to the bean and to eat deep dish pizza, have they really seen Chicago? No, they haven't. In the same way, if pastors, church leaders, worship leaders only ever take people where they want to go, do they see, do they ever really see the fullness of who God is? No, you have to take them where they don't want to go. So our number one skill we have to have is guiding people. Today, we're going to pray this prayer and it comes from, it's written by an African bishop from 350, you know? Yeah. And here's what it says. And people all over the world pray this prayer. And so this morning, we're going to join our brothers and sisters who've already been worshiping and join our words to their words as we say these things. Yeah, it's resetting them. It's mm-hmm. positioning them. So and that we're interpreting and we're going. So I would say you don't need a big flashy team. You don't need the world's best singers. You don't need a great sound system. All you need is the ability to say, do I know the stories of my brothers and sisters? Not even across the world, across the street. Do I know their stories? Um, and I would say you start there. And if you don't know their stories, well, then you probably have some friendships you need to build. That's right. I say amen to that. It's interesting that we talk about knowing the other because I found really encouraging the statement here that you made later in the book. You said the biggest barriers Christians face in developing Christian developing communities hospitable to people of every ethnicity and culture is their ignorance about their own culture. We are unaware of what it means to be us and hyper aware of what it means to be them. Can you give me an example of that? I, I agree, by the way. I, I just want to know. We, we talk about building relationships with others and starting to help that inform our ministry practice. But I think you're right. Oftentimes the problem is we don't know how we are cultural. Yeah, 
especially for the majority, let me say that, especially for the majority and and in any space. So it's like, you don't know who you are until people come in. So um, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, one time my husband went to a leadership meeting at our church and they were having a discussion about small groups and someone said, well, something, something about being a Puerto Rican church. And then everyone who had grown up there or was there a long time was like, we're not a Puerto Rican church. And then the white guy, the Chinese girl, and the Mexican person was like, yes, you are. And it was like, I think they felt it as a, as an attack or like a, a judgment, but it wasn't a judgment. It was merely an observation. So, and well, what makes it then a Puerto Rican church? And then you can start to describe like, well, this, this, and this, and this, and this. And it's usually people from the outside that can come in and see and can name what are your cultural values are. And in within the church, let's say you're a Latino church and you have a mixture of different Latino traditions, you would say we're very diverse. We're socioeconomically diverse. We're ethnically diverse. We're generationally diverse. And that's not a lie. It's true. But if an African-American were to come into that space, they'd be like, this church ain't black. You know, like it's not. <laughs> and they would be able to tell you why. Because there are traditions within, within the African-American church that they that would be lacking within that space. So I think, yeah, you need, you have to know yourself. Like, how? What do you mean by loud? How loud is too loud? What do you mean by long? Like the other day, it was like an hour into worship, and I was like, okay, we're we're probably going to be here like ten more minutes in in worship. And I was thinking about a visitor that was at our church, and I was like, oh my god, they're probably dying. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they're probably dying. Um, <laughs> and it's not because we're doing anything wrong. It's because we have a cultural preference for a longer worship time. So if we just know that our worship time is longer and we're not judging ourselves for it and we're not apologizing for it, we can at least say, huh, if you didn't come from that tradition, this might feel a little long. We might want to tell them to pack a snack, you know? Um, so yeah, I think you need to know your culture. And if if you're, you start by asking the questions, not only what's on the outside, like the way you dress, the language that you speak, um, you know, the, the particular books that you read or whatever, but really what are the values underneath? Like, for example, are children in the service with you? Are children not in the service with you? That's right. Do they get spoken about or are they spoken to? Yeah. It makes me think of going back to it where you said we might need to build some friendships. It sounds like that's the solution in both directions, right? Not only do you get to know and deepen your understanding of the other, by bringing the other into relationship with you, you start highlighting and seeing, oh, I'm different than this. And you start knowing yourself even better. It seems like it bo- it works both ways. I laughed out loud in your book, oh, when reading your book, when you told the story about taking students on a tour of churches that they hadn't been to before. And you pointed out that students had a kind of habit. The first thing they did when encountering a church that was different than them is that they pointed out all the commonalities between the service they had just gone to and their own traditional service experience or church experience. And then you said the second thing they did was compliment all those commonalities. How great is this church because they do this, this, that, which we also do. <laughs> and it sounds like to some degree they're minimizing the differences. How do we avoid doing that kind of minimizing thing? Yeah. Well, well, I think I, I, if I recall, that's also the story where I would ask them, would you want to congregate here that's normally? Right. And they're like, oh no. Yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> I think it's because we're taught 
we're taught that that's the Christian thing to do. Like we're taught that the Christian thing to do is to talk about unity, to like amplify our unity. And I don't, I, I, we don't have enough time to get into why that is. Um, But to amplify our unity doesn't mean we diminish our diversity. To amplify our unity doesn't mean we say we're uniform. It means we're just together. Um, And if you have ever, like, I'm married, you know, interculturally. So, I I mean, my husband and I were, were one, but we're also so different. And so when we go to make a decision, it's like, you know, it's a process (laughs) because (laughs) we have to sort through like, what values are we operating in? So I think people want to believe that in order to be unified in Jesus, we have to be uniform. We have to be the same. And that's just boring. Yeah, it's conformity. And I believe that if we were to say, what in a world that is so different, what would it look like for us to come across our differences to identify our differences, to embrace our differences, to celebrate our differences, and to acknowledge that they cause tension, but to be able to move through the tension towards peace versus ignoring the tension, which I believe is an incredibly Western value. So um, Andres Tapia, he writes a book called The Inclusion Paradox, and he talks about how when people from other cultures that aren't the majority in in whichever setting, like let's say you're not a majority culture and then you, you, you anticipate differences. You assume you're going to be different. So I go to, to a pastor's conference. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be like one of the only ones like me. Sure. And so I anticipate difference. I prepare for the difference. I emotionally get myself ready for that difference. And then I am ready to engage when that difference happens, when the tension comes. If you, are never anticipating differences when it comes, you try to like put out that fire. So I think that's what's happening in the church. I think that people want, they believe that to be Christian means to be unified and to be unified means we don't talk about where we disagree. And I'm not sure how to build something from that because basic anthropology tells us that every culture, every cultural location um, designs their own set of cultural values that they operate in society with. So yeah. we know that to worlds. be true. Yeah, we know that to be true. And the reality is um, most of the stuff that we have within the church um, around um, the, the discipline of anthropology and missiology is talking about when you go somewhere else. When I go to China, well, of course I adapt because I'm only going to be there for a month and I'm not Chinese. And so I'm adapting I understand I'm different. I'm going. But then I come back. What those books don't address is what happens when you're actually creating new culture together, not not visiting a culture, um, not moving into a culture and trying to um, dislocate yourself, which I don't think ever really works anyway. But what happens when you're people from different cultures creating a new culture together? Who gets to be the guest and who gets to be the host? Yeah, who gets to be the leader and who doesn't? You yeah. spend a lot of time in the book talking about leadership in really great ways. You highlight that often when we think about multiculturalism, multi-ethnic churches, we're asking ethnic minorities to join the majority culture and how that creates some problems as it relates to shared leadership. I got one last question that I can ask you for time's sake, and it's it's one that's kind of personal. It's it's a little bit of my own kind of high horse, if you will. Uh I was in a conversation recently with my students, several Hispanic students that are in classes with me, and we were talking about 
uh, a recent sermon that we had heard by a Chicago pastor that we know, Charlie Dates here, right, who preaches here in Chicago as a church here called Progressive. And in the sermon, he talked about how he loves the vision of multicultural churches and multi-ethnic churches. He said, but I also don't want the African-American church tradition to die in creating these kind of fusions. And you talk about fusions in your book. You did an excellent job addressing that. Uh, I've been thinking about how often Hispanics don't have a Charlie Dates who is saying, we need to also retain the existing traditions, right? Uh, On one end, we don't want tokenism. We don't want to say Hispanics have to come in here and be tokenized, celebrated, separated out. But we also don't want appropriation on the other end. But what we do want is a kind of multi-ethnic model that retains existing traditions, that celebrates those traditions. How do we do that? How do we avoid tokenism, avoid appropriation, and strike that middle? Well, I mean, in the book United by Faith, one of the ways they tried to address it um, is by talking about multi-congregational, multi-ethnic churches, which I believe is a fantastic model, particularly in immigrant contexts, because you have language barriers, but you also have um, cultural, like kind of experiential life stage barriers. So I think about the immigrants that are at in our church that um, are first generation who have just come, you know, and the things they're going through. And I'm, I'm not sure if our if our examples during our sermons or if our songs or our, our prayers actually match the longings of their hearts. So I think there is a space or even if we were to think about youth congregations, like our element right. that meets on Wednesday night, the way they approach worship, the way they do preaching, the way they do Bible study, so different. Um, and so I think there need, there need to be spaces for people who are alike to come together. And I think that a church like progressive, a, a church like, uh, well, I can't think of any, but like a churches that are immigrant churches or second gen Latino churches that are Latino led. I think that there is a real need for that to retain not only the traditions, but the theology of that church. Because I'm telling you, if you're going to do the work of creating culture and if you're going to do the work of peace building and if you're going to do the work of justice, you cannot do it without having a strong theology of the role of the Holy Spirit and the centrality of the church. And I believe, I particularly believe that the Latino churches, that the Latina church right now has a theology of God's goodness and the move of the Holy Spirit that is desperately needed in the work of justice. Um, and so I think if we were to be taken over, <laughs> diluted um, under the leadership of someone who didn't understand that, um, I think that would go away. Yeah. And I frankly have not seen very many models of multi-ethnic churches where there are black and Latino pastors at the lead and have authority over the church. That's right. Typically we're underneath other people and we're assimilating um, and conforming to the, not only the traditions or style, but the theology of that church. Um, I go to Costa Rica. I go to Mexico. I go down the street um, in Humble Park and I'm watching a theology of suffering, a theology of God's goodness, a theology of, of, of compassion, uh, of community, of solidarity that is not in any book I've read. And if we don't create those spaces, then 
we won't have those books. And I do feel like there is a stronger tradition of that in the African-American church where people have gone on to seminary or gone on to have platforms and influence to be able to write that down. But I feel like ours is just beginning. I really do. Yeah. The, the gems that are there have not been platformed and it's not, it's not for you and I. It's not for the Latina church. It's for the whole church that it's needed. That's right. Yeah, Sandra, that is a note, a great note to end on. I'm going to say amen to that. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to the Hispanic church continuing to grow and join the conversation and to have its seat at the table. Uh, we're going to be recommending your book. Again, it's called The Next Worship. Uh, glorifying God in a diverse world to be up on the website. Is there any final thought, uh, a quick thing you want to say to our listeners that we didn't ask about, or you thought, Hey, it's really important that I get this out there. I mean, I'm just excited about where the church is going and I'm particularly excited about um, this next generation of leaders that is living lives that are diverse. So they're being confronted with things quicker than I think I would have been when I was um, leading in the church. So I want to say that I really believe that, um, the folks that are shaping the church right now, um, the future leaders of the church, I think that they have a lot to offer and I think that we should be paying attention. Amen. Sandra, thanks for taking the time. Blessings on your holiday as you go visit family in California. Enjoy it. And uh, we look forward to continuing to partner in this diverse world. Blessings on you. Thank you. Thank you.